The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you please turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we continue in this series on the home stretch, but probably won't finish until after the new year in January or February. As I was preparing for this message, I was thinking about how on occasion I'll joke with my wife that uh, our Chrysler town and country minivan drives like a woman's car. And, but our, our Chevy Suburban drives like a man's car. And, and I found that, you know, I also joke with her that, you know, there are certain stores that are feminine and there are stores that are masculine. Like A.C. Moore and Michael's craft stores are definitely feminine stores. Lowe's and Home Depot are definitely masculine stores. And it's more than just the products they carry, but the way they lay it out, the way they do promotionals, the kind of customer experience you have, it's just, it's just a different feel to it. Well, you know, we, we can laugh about that and, and point out the obvious stereotypes prevalent in our culture, but in our text tonight, the Apostle Paul wants to draw our attention to some very important matters regarding the two genders that God has made, that are intended by God to reveal something of God's glory, both by creation and redemption, especially as it applies to God's people as we gather for corporate worship. He who has ears to hear, let him hear God's word. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophecies with this head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory." for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, 
we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I once again pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Every six weeks or so, my wife breaks out her shears and clippers and begins to transform our six sons from mangy mutts into respectable-looking young men once again. And my wife also cuts my hair on a regular basis. In fact, I can't remember the last time I went to anybody else uh, to have my hair cut. And uh, my wife is not only good at boy cuts, or in my case, a man cut, uh, but she saves our family a lot of money. She's still waiting for a lump sum of payback, <laughs> of back pay after years of service. But when it comes to my wife and my daughter, they periodically visit the stylist, who only can do what the stylist can do to trim and cut and maintain her beauty and to uh, display their glory with all their feminine features. Hair clothing styles, an untold number of features, both outward and inward, make up what we call gender distinctions. And these gender differences that we find, most of which are hardwired in our nature as boy and girl born into this world, and yet there are sometimes things that are just driven by cultural convention. Well, it's my contention that that hair is not Paul's primary concern in the text tonight. He wants to first affirm the Corinthians' expression of gospel freedom and yet confront a distortion, a, a blurring of gender differences in the way they practice worship. And he appeals both to creation and cultural convention It wants to dismiss any idea that the gospel age eliminates gender, something that we'll show in the text as we move forward. As it applies to today, you know, we live in a day and age where there are many, many voices declaring that men and women have very little, if any, differences at all. And we would counter that by saying that men and women are different. And that is a good thing, that we we do not apologize for the God-given differences that we have as male and female. And we should be well aware that there are many who would blur and intentionally confuse the God-given distinction between the sexes. But as God's redeemed, male and female, made in God's image and remade in the likeness of Christ— Ours is the calling and the privilege to worship and serve God in a way that puts on display our masculinity and our femininity to God's glory and the good of others. Now, I think you'll recognize with me that this is a difficult passage and uh, with not a, a small amount of controversy surrounding it. Uh, But my task, my main aim tonight is to approach it in three ways. First, I want to clarify what I believe Paul is saying because the language can be confusing. Second, I hope to shed light on what Paul's main concerns are. What are the underlying principles at stake in this troublesome passage? And thirdly, we want to 
understand, how does this text apply to us? Because in contrast to many who would insist that this passage has no relevance to us in our modern age, I would insist that this passage is vital for us in a world gone mad with gender relativism. So the first question facing us in this text is, why is Paul commending the Corinthians in verse 2 when they apparently need correction, uh, especially regarding uh, head coverings and the Lord's Supper in the rest of chapter 11? And uh, I hold the view that, um, you know, whatever the faults the Corinthian believers had, and they did have many, they were very good at worship and exercising their spiritual gifts and including people in corporate worship. In, in contrast to the practice of Jews and many pagan groups, Christian worship fully allowed women's participation in worship allowing them to speak and express their spiritual gifts by way of prayer and prophecy. And I think what we'll find as we study prophecy in chapter 14, that it's not exactly the same thing as preaching, though it includes exhortation and encouragement requiring the interpretation of the, of the elders and pastors of the church. Uh, but, but women had dignity and participation in the earliest form of Christian worship. Now, in this time... In history, the Jewish rabbis largely disdained women, considered them unfit to teach, but you'll recall that both Jesus and Paul had women disciples and allowed women to have leadership roles under the authority of leading men in their companies, and um, that's a unique thing. It's unique as it stands out compared to the rest of ancient, the ancient world, where God through the gospel ages, restoring, elevating women to their rightful role, uh, restoring his original intent for his glory to be manifest through the equal service of men and women who are both made in his image and redeemed as new creatures in Christ. And so, Paul begins by commending the people at Corinth because they have not just gone the hyper-safe conservative route of denying or excluding women from uh, service and worship. But now he has to correct them because they've gone too far and failing to preserve the created order and cultural convention that properly uh, distinguishes the two sexes. You know, the, and I believe this is consistent with this reading and understanding of the Corinthian people, a people who love their freedom, who, who are more than happy to expand their gospel freedom to the outer limits and uh, even to the point of misuse and abuse. Consider how Paul handled the Galatian church, where he has to clearly tell them, there is now no male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. The very conservative, nearly legalistic church at Galatia needed to have that expansion of freedom. But now the over, overly progressive church at Corinth needed to be reined in a bit in order to preserve what God's good and perfect will was for his people by expressing their unique gender differences in an appropriate way in corporate worship. Two questions confront us as we look at verse 3. What does Paul mean by head? Uh, the word head in Greek uh, kind of has three main meanings. It can mean authority, 
uh, of over a subordinate. It can mean source, as in like the mouth of a river. It can also mean prominence, as in uh, the, the relationship, the location of the head above the body. Well, after studying this and understanding and reading the commentaries, I, I've concluded that I believe Paul is primarily talking about authority. And as we look at the logic of God being the head of Christ and the man or the husband being the head of the wife or the woman, uh, and, you know, and also Christ being the head of the man, you, you see a hierarchy, and yet I also have sympathy for those who have studied this passage more than I have that indicate that, that, that Paul's driving passion is not hierarchy. The main issue with the men and women in the church is not subversion of women trying to take over men's roles as much as a blurring of proper gender distinctions. So there's kind of this egalitarian and hierarchical tension going on here that Paul was trying to reestablish God's good order uh, for the welfare of God's people. Now, a second question in verse 3 is, is this referring to man being the head of woman, or that those words in Greek could also mean the husband being the head of the wife? And the ESV chooses that translation, and I tend to agree that that is what Paul's main concern is. Um, and just, you know, as you think about this, this teaching, you know, we, we live in an egalitarian age that is repulsed by the whole idea of submission and subordination, and uh, we, we wrestle with that in this age, and yet Paul helps us here. He makes it more clear than almost anywhere else. You go to Ephesians 5 and elsewhere, but the third relationship where it says the head of Christ is God puts all things in perspective. Because we know from our biblical theology, we know that Christ, the eternal Son of God, is equal to the Father in power and glory, and yet the Son of God chose a role of subordination. He chose to submit to the Father's will and plan for eternal redemption, and yet that does not make him less. It does not make him inferior in any way. And it's in that, that same model that we find the relationship of husband and wife in covenant marriage, that God has established a structure of authority both in the church of male headship and leadership and in the home of husbands being the head of their wives, and yet the model is Christ is the Son and the Father. So we have a healthy understanding of equality and equal dignity, and yet still there is an order, a relationship, a a kind of hierarchy uh, where there's authority and submission. Now I would clarify, as you might clarify if we're doing a sermon on marriage from Ephesians 5, wives are called to submit to their husbands. It's not that women are called to submit to men in a general way, though women in the church should submit to the male leadership, just as men in the church should also submit to the male leadership in the church. But the point is we have freedom, the freedom that we have, that we are all one in Christ, that in this gospel age, the gospel does not eliminate authority. It does not just make everything flat, like uh, some organizations do today, there's still a place for God-given authority in the church and in the home. Now, the next major question that we have to address 
is what does Paul mean by head coverings as we come to verses 4 and 5? And, you know, the best commentators reduce it down to, is Paul is either talking about a, a veil or a shawl-like uh, headgear that a man or a woman would wear uh, up in their hair, or Paul could just be talking about hair, uh, that that hair itself is, is the covering uh, on the head. And we know from historical research and archaeology that it was very common in this day for Roman men to wear a kind of liturgical head covering whenever they would express their piety in prayer and prophecy. We also know that women, respectable Roman women, would wear their long hair up, and they would tie it up and keep it tied up and not long. Long hair suggested sexual uh, overtones and availability. Um, And one commentator says it well in describing how in Roman culture certain male attire or hairstyles were deemed effeminate and overtly sexual, while appropriate head coverings for respectable Roman women served as a protection of their dignity and status as women not to be propositioned. A woman who went out unveiled forfeited the protection of Roman law against male pursuers and attackers. So I would argue that though Paul is possible that Paul is simply talking about hair and having a woman keep her hair up and a man not to wear his hair along, I do think that Paul is talking about headgear. I do think he's talking about some kind of veil or shawl-like device that was worn on the head. And, uh, and, that, and if that is true, then Paul's later references to hair are merely by way of illustration to communicate the maintaining of gender distinctions. I mean, Paul could just as well have used clothing as an illustration or example to to make his point that we need to preserve male and female proper gender distinctions um, uh, for the sake of propriety and uh, to honor God as our creator. Now, what I believe this means is that, that Paul was concerned that men are not covering up their head or expressing uh, their freedom, that, that they're not confusing their worship with the pagans, nor are they going to appear effeminate, that they are going to preserve their masculinity by not having their heads covered. Uh, in contrast, not only would a woman, a Christian woman in worship, wear her hair up, but she also would wear a hair covering, a head covering, for the sake of propriety. And so Paul's main concern is, while he's glad for the Corinthians to express their freedom, they went a little too far in by eliminating any distinction between male and female headwear. And he believes that that is a pathway uh, that begins to destroy self-dignity. It was confusing to the pagan culture. It failed to demonstrate respect for others. uh, And also... Made, gave the appearance that Christian women were available women, contrary to the intent uh, of the way women were, were communicating uh, their status by their hair. So let me just offer by first application that I don't believe that this means women today need to wear a, hair co- a head covering in worship. I don't believe that we need to follow the practice of the Amish or the Mennonite who, where women wear a head covering not just in worship but all the time uh, 
as, and that's just kind of a distinguishing part, a distingu- distinguishing mark in their culture about what distinguishes male and female. I also don't advocate women and girls wearing hats or bonnets, although there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, by all means, wear them if that's fashionable to you. Uh, but it's not, it's not required. And any, any insistence on wearing head coverings uh, for, for women in worship, I believe is a misreading and a misapplication of our text. Because I believe what Paul is really after here is to apply principles of gender distinction that communicate truth about God's created order in, a, in the cultural situation in which you live. So we're going to unpack that as we go forward, as we try to understand, well, what, what does this mean for us today? Um, so, so what are Paul's concerns? Uh, as we're going to go through the rest of, of the text in verses 5 through following, well, I, one principle is very clear that, that Paul does not want women to dress like men, or, or vice versa. And we know that that was a practice condemned by the Old Testament. Uh, transgenderism is nothing new. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and that, uh, you know, gender identity confusion is no new thing. And, but I would say it's, it's also no more natural than problems with anger, alcoholism, or any other issue uh, that in our fallenness we may experience um, in, in, our, in our broken sexuality. Um, and I believe Paul is, is hinting at this as we get into verses 5 and 6 when he begins to talk about a, any woman who refuses to embrace her feminine distinction if she's not wearing her head covering in this cultural context. She's bringing dishonor on herself. She's actually disgracing herself. And he does by way of illustration, you know, if she's not going to wear her head covering, then she might as well go all the way and cut her hair short or shave her head all the way. Now, in this culture, a, any woman who cut her hair short was intentionally trying to look like a man, whether it was lesbianism or perhaps a woman on the run, a fugitive or a refugee who's trying to protect herself from men, uh, protect herself and her vulnerability. Also, it was a, a common punishment uh, to shave the heads of prostitutes. So, for Christian women... Their glory is their hair, wear it long, but keep it up and keep it in propriety with keeping with your feminine nature and and what constitutes proper femininity in Greco-Roman culture. Um, And and Paul is just, he's saying here, yes, express your gospel freedom, but even your freedom has limits that you might preserve your dignity and ultimately we protect women. That, that our Christian women are not being made available to uh, the, the wiles of men who are going to mis- misunderstand what's going on when God's people gather for worship. In my high school years, I was a lifeguard at a community pool, uh, and my boss was a lesbian woman named Jan. Jan was a tennis pro and the manager of our pool, and she dressed and acted like a man. Uh, She smoked like a chimney, she drank lots of beer, she told dirty jokes, and she was the life of the party. She was really a lot of fun. And uh, when I became a Christian, after my junior year, I had several talks with Jan about the gospel. Jan was very attracted to Jesus as a man, as a savior, 
and yet Jan did not want anything to do with the church. As I look back upon her story of brokenness and her relationship with a lover who was very feminine in appearance, uh, you know, Jan in her own way was expressing a kind of rebellion against her own God-given feminine design. But I would conclude that, that Jan needed Christ far more than she needed to be feminine. And that it's only by coming to Christ, only by coming to understand the gospel, can that internal change happen. As some of you may have read about in the Rosario uh, Butterfield story, uh, uh, of a woman coming out of lesbianism uh, to embrace her femininity, to embrace uh, marriage, and even a calling into ministry. You know, Jan and her companion were kind of an extreme case of a distorted a distortion of the biblical vision of proper male and female intimate relations, which I believe verses 7 and 10 help us to understand. Paul says, God made man to reflect and reveal his glory, that, that man is the glory of God. And then God made the woman, the original woman Eve, to be the man's helper. And she was his helper to subdue the earth, to multiply upon the earth and to, to spread and multiply image bearers of God all across the earth. But we know ever since the fall, that vision's been under attack. And the enemy wants to attack masculinity and femininity. Why? Because he wants to dim God's glory on earth. And whenever we fail to uphold healthy masculinity and healthy femininity, that God's glory is, is dimmed on the earth. We live in a world where work is cursed, where marriage is hard, where parenting is challenging. Pornography and various perversions are all a distortion of our God-given masculinity and femininity. Divorce, spousal abuse, Ashley Madison are all ultimately assaults on God's glory. And this is what Paul's concern is. Preserving healthy male-female relationships, asserting yourself as a masculine man in God's image, a feminine woman in God's image, is ultimately about God's glory. Revealed through your gender, through marriage, through proper relationships in the church. Now we come to verse 10, and we're reminded that in this day and age that a married woman would wear a head covering as a sign and symbol of authority on her head, uh, and nowadays we use a wedding ring. So, so that cultural standard has obviously changed. You know, my wife will occasionally forget her wedding ring when she goes out in public, and she feels very self-conscious because uh, that sign is not with her. You know, I solve that problem by never taking mine off. Just keep it, just, I'm very, very efficient-minded, so I just keep it on. But, but then there's this obscure part of verse 10 where he, he says, because of the angels. And there's been some debate among the commentators, what does this mean? I think the simplest answer is that these are God's angels. These are heavenly spiritual beings who are with us, who are observing what we're doing. We're told by Peter that the angels long to look into the redemptive story that you and I are experiencing. Because remember, angels don't experience salvation. They're not fallen creatures. 
You and I are fallen and yet redeemed by the blood of Christ. You and I are putting on display the gospel story for the sake of the angels who are observing the wondrous, beauty, glorious revelation of God's redemptive purpose among his redeemed people. And so the way we worship, the way we treat one another, how our marriages run, how our homes run, are all on display to help communicate back up the beauty and the wonder and the splendor of God's gospel message. What about verses 11 through 12? We have another concern here, Paul seems to say, that he, he wants men, while they need to lead and take authority, he doesn't want men to, take too much, to make too much of their authority, reminding men that they are dependent upon women. That, yes, the woman was made from the man, but a man is born from woman. And I think we could all say that, you know, maleness and female, femaleness is, is both is mystifying and alluring and at many times infuriating. And God, in his wisdom and for his glory, is, is using the, the, the painful differences sometimes in our maleness and our femaleness to grow us, to mature us. And that if we're wise, we will seek understanding and appreciate God's wisdom. We will gain insight into God's glory from whom come all things as we have healthy and appropriate relationships with the other gender, whether in marriage or otherwise. We need each other. We cannot fulfill God's purposes without one another, so we must not join our culture's battle of the sexes, disdaining one another, showing contempt for another, rather affirming, protecting, and encouraging one another in our God-given roles. Well, the final concern in the last four verses, 13 to 16, I believe Paul he doesn't want to be heavy-handed with this policy, uh, and he fully recognizes there are going to be some who are going to be dismissive of his uh, claim on uh, masculine and feminine roles in the church. And um, Paul was fully aware that there are going to be those more interested in conflict than in the truth. And to those people, he has nothing more to say. Um, there will be people who reject biblical masculinity and femininity and continue down their pathway to destruction. But those who listen, who submit to God's wisdom, will find renewed life and blessing. Finally, one last concern. For any of you who read verse 14 and think, aha, see, here's Paul's condemnation of men wearing long hair. Well, it turns out that word nature in that verse can and probably does refer to a convention common society. Even John Calvin uh, did, did not condemn long hair. Uh, the John Calvin saw that, this was, that men wearing long hair was not necessarily a violation of their God-given masculinity. It, it really depends. That depends upon the cultural context and whether it's intended to be rebellion against one's masculinity or whether it is an affirmation of God's good design. So we need to be careful to to adopt too quickly legalistic demands and dogmatic applications, and yet recognizing there is a creation rootedness in in our gender differences. But we need to remember that God is not male nor female. And yet he chose in his wisdom to display something of his character and his glory through his image bearers as male and female, 
And when men refuse to be masculine, and when women refuse to be feminine, God's glory on earth is dimmed. See, a feminine woman will bring out the best masculinity in her husband, in her sons, and the other important men in her life. Such a woman will be bold with the truth, and yet recognizing that a berating, nagging, manipulative woman emasculates a man. A loving wife will remind her husband of his responsibility to lead with patient firmness and does so with a submission that is God-honoring. A feminine, a truly feminine mother will recognize her own natural attachment to her son but not hinder his natural growth onto mature masculine adulthood. It's a mother's crucial role to civilize her sons, to prepare and equip them emotionally, to enter into the world with empathy, to be a leader and a protector that the world needs. In like manner, a truly masculine man brings out the best femininity in his wife, in his daughters, in the other important women in his life. Such a man does not crush her or dominate her, or bristle at her when she challenges and questions him. A leading man needs a strong woman at his side. Such a man will provide a woman security, stability, in the midst of a world that threatens with life's uncertainties. A truly masculine man tends his garden well so that his wife and his daughters flourish and put on display their beauty before a world so the world can see God's nurturing care. I believe it's absolutely true that the men and women who spent time with Jesus on earth became more masculine, became more feminine. And I believe that's true for us today, that when you abide with Christ, when you walk with him and seek him and pray to him and worship him, you become more truly masculine and feminine as God designed you to be and wants you to be to reflect his glory to a watching world. Well, what about some final applications? How do we really apply this to ourselves? I, I offer three main things here. I want to say, first, first of all, that you and I must clarify and not confuse gender. Clarify and not confuse our gender. Some of you who were as unsanctified as I may remember back in the, the 90s, Saturday Night Live had this ser- series of skits called, called It's Pat. It was this, this skit series about an, an androgynous character who kept getting into these hilarious situations with coworkers, with the barbershop, with the people at the gym, and nobody could figure out whether Pat was male or female. And it was hysterical, and you can see them on YouTube. They're really, really funny, and they're probably very politically incorrect today, 24 years later. But there's a a standard of of lack of clarity. You know, I I rightly laugh at this androgynous character, Pat. I also rightly bristle when I'm greeted at a store in the mall by an overly effeminate man who is clearly 
broadcasting his sexual orientation to me. The 150 parents in Missouri were right to protest their public high school's policy to allow a young man who self-identifies as a girl to use the girl's locker room to shower and change. We have a calling to preserve boundaries, especially in a society of le- where leadership is finding it harder and harder to, f- to respond with any clear boundaries and finding reasons to deny individuals who demand that these cultural conventions do not apply to them, whether it's in the public restroom or in the college dorm room. I believe we also need to protect women who suffer from the pressures of lacking clarity, where femininity is is frowned upon, where women can't flourish in the home, in the church, in the marketplace. And I think we need to affirm what is good and pleasing in God's sight. I would also say, secondly, that we, we must enjoy our gender differences, even laugh and enjoy them, rather than despise them or be cynical about them, whether it's towards the opposing gender or to our own gender. Years ago, I I witnessed a high school stage production of the comedy Charlie's Aunt. If you have seen that show, it is the most hysterical comedy that that I'm aware of. It takes place in a boarding school, and there's these three boys, and the one boy has to play the role of one of the other boy's aunt to protect this this ruse, this game of of two boys trying to pursue courtship with two women. And it's one of the funniest things you ever saw because uh, watching a man play the role of a woman. And yet on the, on the flip side of that, we know that little boys hate being called or compared to a girl. I remember as a, as a young boy, my grandmother on my father's side, who had raised two sons and never had a girl of her own, she used to tell me I was too pretty to be a boy. And boy, did I hate that. Thankfully, I had wise and gracious parents who helped me not to respond negatively, but in love and affirmation of my grandmother who meant well, uh, to not disdain the, the comparison to a girl. I believe that the church should be a place where men respect women, where boys are taught not to disdain girls, The church should be a safe place where women are protected, whether it's from abusive men or unhealthy standards in our culture, where male authority and headship should be taught, exercised, and modeled with gentleness and true biblical strength. Lastly, I would say that we're called to enhance our gender, not suppress it. We should not be ashamed of our gender, uh, years ago, my wife and I knew a, a young woman for a time who, who really refused to express her femininity. She really kind of refused to make herself up, and though she wanted a boyfriend, she wanted to get married someday, but she insisted that he had to love her and accept her for who she was. Well, it is true that uh, inner beauty of character is more important than outward adornment, and yet outward adornment does have its place. The, the bee is drawn by the beauty and sweet-smelling fragrance of the flower. And I believe that this young woman's insecurity and self-protection was manifesting it in a bit of self-contempt about her own feminine design 
And I would say that I, I deeply appreciate my wife who keeps herself up, not only for her own dignity, but for my benefit. And certainly, we can obsess over outward adornment and beauty in very unhealthy ways. Men can do this as well. Through fitness, through bodybuilding, through the accumulation of stuff, cars, and things that make us look attractive to women. But we need to enhance our gender and not suppress it. On a typical Sunday morning, you would find me and six sons waiting patiently in our Suburban, the man truck, parked in our garage. As we await the arrival of the queen and the princess who are making their final preparations so that we might escort them into the public house of worship. And uh, I will confess that there were, in my younger years, I was a bit irritable, impatient as the clock was ticking and as the pressure to arrive on time was becoming more challenging. But I've learned to communicate more graciously the importance of timeliness and trying to model for my sons patience and appreciation for the other gender and also to embrace what, what many women say, you know, aren't the results worth the wait? Gender matters. In a society that's desperately seeking to eliminate distinctions, we are not free to redefine gender as we please and must resist other people's efforts to do so. God glorifying masculinity blesses the church. As a blessing to society as men express competency and, and accomplishment to God's glory, when men initiate, when they take responsibility, when they honor their word, when they protect what is righteous and good, they show God's redemptive pursuit of us in Christ. God glorifying femininity blesses the church and society by way of godly submission, by nurture, by maintaining standards of excellence and beauty to show forth God's rich and wonderful care for souls that need rescue and restoration to the work of Christ. Where men lead, where women follow, the church grows. The home flourishes. While there will be those who are offended at our biblical conviction of male headship, there will be many others who are attracted. to something beautiful, to something glorious that expresses the wisdom and the care of God. Though while we are in this age and we await the full gospel age of redemption when male and female will cease to exist as we now understand it. But until that time, as we abide in Christ, may we conform to God's standards. May we enjoy, may we enhance, may we rejoice and delight in God's blessing and his gift of male and female. For we are all one in Christ. To him be the praise, glory, and honor forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how good it is to be your image bearers, to reflect your glory and how wondrous and how glorious it is to to ponder uh, maleness and femaleness and how we can please you and and glorify you as we pursue godly masculinity and godly femininity. Help us to be a people who protect what is good and pleasing in your sight and what is good for 
our families and for our society as a whole. Bless us as we depart and enter into the world of service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.